You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Many of us are planning different dinners this Christmas. The table might be a little bit smaller this year. For our turkey farmers, a possible move away from a big bird is a problem. The birds are being reared for months and finishing them smaller is a struggle, as our agriculture and consumer affairs correspondent Fran McNulty reports. This is what a field full of relaxed, free-range turkeys sounds like. And this is what it sounds like when they get excited. For turkeys, Christmas means only one thing, so their excitement is somewhat misplaced. Despite the prospect of smaller gatherings this year, most people are still opting for the traditional meat. But some want smaller birds or just turkey crowns. For a sector that grows birds over many months, it presents a challenge. Yeah, so when I order my turkeys in March, um, I have to pick what size they're going to be. Own Sharkey rears free-range turkeys near Kells. Because different breeds of turkeys finish at different sizes. So I have a set amount of turkeys will finish at between 5 and 6 kg and up the ladder, and it's all predetermined. Um, so this year, there's definitely more of a demand for small turkeys. But unfortunately, you can't just make them small. Because? Because that they are the size they're going to be. And that's, that's the genetics of the bird, that's the breed of the bird. If you can hear a noise on the microphone as Owen is speaking, that's the turkeys nibbling on the microphone stand. At Mapworth Farm, they roam freely around a green field and in the distance you can see hundreds of geese happily graze. It may sound like a crowded place, but there are far fewer birds here this year. I've dropped a number of turkeys this year because... I could see the market wasn't always going to be what it was. This year we're trying to reach out more to more direct customers. We've started with neighbour food. We've been more selective with the butchers we're supplying into as well. Um, so we're trying to reach more direct customers. But Owen's turkeys will be sold in some local butchers, like Hugh Maguire's in Ashburn. Hughes puddings and sausages are award-winning, but already customers are starting to talk turkey. But do they want smaller birds? Uh, up till about two weeks ago, people were concerned about what size of turkey they were going to, going to have for Christmas because of the restrictions and the amount of people allowed into the homes and you couldn't travel outside your county. But since the Taoiseach announced there at the weekend there might be a chance of a relaxation towards Christmas, We've noticed last weekend in particular a huge increase in ordering of turkeys and there was no, there was no, really didn't care about the size of the turkey. They were ordering the five, seven kilo average board for the family turkey. And uh, I do believe this Christmas will be very good for butchers. Uh, people are coming back to the butcher. We have noticed that in the last six, 12 months where we have been very, very busy, very solid throughout the whole year because of the restaurants closed down and, and uh, hotels. So, you know, they had, they're coming back to the butcher for those specific and unique cuts that they can't get anywhere else. Jerry McGeehan's turkey order is in early. Like most of us, he knows he's facing a different Christmas. There'll be obviously less people this, this time round, but uh, it'll be just the, the people that were closest to and, and all through the COVID, so uh, this time round there'll probably be about six people. Normally I'd have maybe 10, 12, because we have a fairly big family, you know. You're still gone with the turkey, but traditional isn't it you, know, you have to it's not it's not christmas without an outdoor so how if there are to be smaller gatherings can butchers and farmers deal with that change here's own again butchers and ourselves have been more creative 
where we have to be encouraging people to maybe take the legs off the bird, put them in the freezer and do them for turkey curry in January. Maybe half the bird. I know one family in particular where they're going to half the bird and they won't be meeting up for Christmas dinner, but they'll both be eating the same turkey at the same time on Christmas Day. So people are getting more creative about it. That's Owen Sharkey ending that report by Fran McNulty. The financial impact of COVID-19 on the charity sector in 2020 won't be fully known until late next year. That's according to the charities regulator, Helen Martin, who has marked the beginning of Charities Trustees Week by acknowledging the services helping the most vulnerable throughout the pandemic. One of those is DePaul Ireland, which, as a homeless charity on the front line, has received, has received statutory funding from the government, but with a reduction in fundraising, it's concerned about next year. Our social affairs correspondent, Alva Keneally, visited one of its services in Dublin city centre. We have our own place After years of living in hostels, Shirelle Levens has a room of her own. And when she talks about the space, her demeanour lifts as she points out that everything in it is for her use alone. So you have your own shower, your own toilet, your own sink, your own double beds, your own TV, your own table and chairs, your own wardrobes, your own kettle. It's brilliant. But the journey to having something of her own hasn't been straightforward. Ended up in Hostel for Girls in Fingness in Tusnewa and uh, was there for three years on and off. I got involved in a bit of shoplifting and ended up shoplifting and back in prison, then back out to Tusnewa, back in prison, back out to Tusnewa. Due to an underlying condition, Shirelle is in shielded accommodation because of COVID-19. It's provided by DePaul in Dublin city centre and she's there with 31 others who also have their own rooms. So what have you got outside you of your nurse, room? You have a, a doctor, you have staff members, DePaul, that help you all the time. The shielding unit where Shirelle lives is funded by the HSE and the Dublin Homeless Regional Executive. Those accommodated are the most medically vulnerable on the margins of society. A quarter of them have cancer and some are terminal. The clinical nurse manager for DePaul is Jess Sears. Most of the, the residents currently here have their own GPs and are linked in and our role is just facilitating bringing those services to them that they don't need to go out in the community. That's the physical side. Are you seeing mental health issues as a result of COVID? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a lot of individuals have been in shielding services since March. Um, they don't have connection with their families and their friends and their peers. Uh, DePaul has quite an extensive volunteer service, which we haven't been able to bring into these specific sites. And so people do struggle with their mental health. Like other charities at the front line in responding to COVID-19, DePaul has faced huge challenges. Here's its CEO, David Carroll. What we would absolutely appeal for is that the statutory funding that currently has been put in place for these additional services is maintained. That government take into account that there may be a fall in fundraised income for all charities next year. And I know throughout the sector people are really concerned, will they survive next year?
It's a timely question given that this week is Charities Trustees Week, which is an acknowledgement of those who've enabled charities to work through the pandemic. The CEO of the Charities Regulator is Helen Martin. So it, we really will have to wait until uh, next year and probably mid to late next year before we really, really understand the financial impact of this on, on charities. Whether you're directly fundraising for the public or you're getting funds from other, from other means, it's been a challenging time for everybody. You know, there's a lot of people who, who've had great ideas and they want to, to jump in and start doing something for the Irish public and what I would say to them is you know the the registration process is is rigorous Uh, so really what we've been advising people to do is to link in with existing charities because they're already set up they have their governance arrangements in place they know what they're doing and they'll be I would say delighted in most cases to work with anybody on a good idea. And that was the charities regulator Helen Martin ending that report by Alva Keneally. Dublin Zoo will launch a fundraising appeal this morning to help it to stay open. The zoo is appealing to the public for help to cover the cost of animal care. We are joined now by its director, Christoph Schwitzer. Uh, Christoph, you're very welcome to the programme. You're closed at the moment under level five. So how bad are the finances? Yeah, good morning, Audrey, and thank you very much, first of all, for having me on this morning uh, to present our Save Dublin Zoo campaign. Um, The impact uh, of the pandemic has indeed been severe on Dublin Zoo's finances. We are in the fifth month of closure now for this year. You know, that's almost half a year. Um, Our visitor numbers have more than halved. um, And the important thing is that over the summer, uh, with social distancing measures in place, we weren't able to allow as many visitors on site to have a great day out um, as we normally can. So we are struggling financially at the moment and indeed without support we're worried um, that we haven't got sufficient reserves to get through the coming winter and may even have to close to the the public. So that's why we are asking the Irish public for help today um, and uh, we'd be really grateful if people could visit our website dublinzoo.ie where we have listed a number of, of ways to help us. Given, give us an idea of how much it costs to run the zoo because it is the animals' home, so they have to live there regardless. They have to be fed, cleaned, looked after. Yeah, that's right. Um, so in, a, in normal times, it costs about a million a month to run um, our zoo, Dublin Zoo here. Um, and uh, of course, we've tried to make um, any cost savings possible during the pandemic. Um, and, and we have achieved that. But, um, you know, there are limits. You can't furlough an elephant. Uh, you can't switch off a zoo at night when you go home. Um, our animals um, need and deserve uh, 24-7 um, care. And um, we we provide the highest standards of animal care and welfare possible. Um, and so animal care alone costs us half a million a month. Um, and these are very high fixed costs. And with no income from visitation, of course, um, we, have, we have difficulty meeting them. And do you get any statutory funding at all from government? Um, No, we haven't got any statutory um, funding at all from government over the last 15 years or so. We are very proud to to actually be able to stand on our own two feet in a normal year. Um, And that's um, due to the support of of our visitors. Um, They come to us in in large numbers, uh, which is great. Um, But at the moment, as I I said, um, that isn't working um, and it may not be working next year either. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's why we are asking the public for help. And given the demands on government for cash from various, so many um, 
bodies and organisations at the moment and indeed people are are strapped for cash to a lot of them. It's it's a struggle, isn't it, to hopefully get some money for your cause? Uh, it is a struggle indeed. Every bit of donation helps, you know, however small. Um, we have various ways to support our Safe Dublin Zoo campaign. Um, and uh, as I say, we've listed some of those on uh, dublinzoo.ie. So, you know, whether that be um, small donations, um, uh, whether that be um, people doing their own fundraisers, that would be great. You know, doing a virtual 5K animal-themed run or something like that. We always... We also have an adoption scheme where people can adopt our animals, pay a certain amount that um, pays for feeding one one animal per year. So that's all possible. And of course, spreading the word would be great as well. We are also in in very constructive talks with um, our local TDs. They are all very, very supportive across parties. Um, you know, and they are trying to help. But in the meantime, uh, I can't stand idle as the director of Dublin Zoo. I have to do something. Um, and that's why we decided to launch our Save Dublin Zoo campaign today. And what's the minimum, Christoph, that you need in order to, to stay open? Is there a real risk that you may shut? Uh, there is a risk at the moment. Um, <clears throat> um, we, we had an emergency financial reserve when the pandemic started. Every zoo has to have that. This is mostly to do with animal diseases, you know, like a foot and mouth outbreak when a zoo may have to shut for a few weeks. Um, now, this is, of course, unprecedented, this pandemic and the prolonged period of closure and then the social distancing measures in between and the limitation on visitor numbers in the summer really have, um, have brought us in this in this situation and we do have um, cash reserves at the moment that will last us um, until probably the early spring um, if we stretch them um, if current restrictions prevail um, and uh, and not beyond right now and and this is you know a very uncomfortable situation I have to make sure that we can continue providing the highest standards of animal care and welfare we will never compromise on that um, and uh, yeah that, that's the reason for this campaign. Okay. Well, good luck with it and thank you for talking to us on Morning Ireland, the Director of Dublin Zoo, Dr Christoph Schwitzer. This evening, Dublin City Council will vote on whether to begin a new multi-million euro housing scheme at Oscar Trainer Road on the city's north side. The plan promises to build hundreds of badly needed new homes and is seen by government as a potential blueprint for other projects across the country. But just like O'Devony Gardens, the row there last year... A political standoff is now taking place over this new site. Our reporter Fikra Okyana is at Oscar Trainer Road. Morning to you, Fikra. Morning, Rachel. Yes, I'm here at the site of the Oscar Trainer Lands Development on the north side of Dublin City. The open field may not look like much now, but it's set to become the latest battleground for politicians and campaigners focused on housing policy in Ireland. Dublin City Council's 63 councillors will tonight vote on whether to back a 14 million euro deal with private developer Glenvay Living to build 853 houses on the public land. Supporters say it's good news and will fast track badly needed homes, but critics say the mix of 50% private, 30% social and 20% affordable housing and questions over their prices mean that just like the O'Devony Gardens row last year, serious hidden problems exist. Lorcan Sir is a senior lecturer in housing at Technological University Dublin and earlier on this morning he outlines the issues around the plan. 
Well, there's a scheme in trying to develop over 800 residential units. The proponents of the scheme would say that the private sector can you know, deliver better quality accommodation uh, and can deliver it faster and create a better ur- urban realm. However, there's a couple of issues with this as well, and it looks very much like Dublin City Council are pressurising councillors to vote in favour of this deal, even though it looks like quite a bad deal. So Dublin City Council, for example, are saying they have no experience in delivering housing. You know, they're not developers. But, you know, since the foundation of the state, we have delivered hundreds and hundreds of thousands of houses. They're saying that they can't deliver um, apartments that would cost Dublin City Council themselves 450000 to deliver a two-bed apartment. And then, of course, Dublin City Council are saying that if the councillors reject this, there will be a five-year delay. And that that's frankly nonsense. I mean, Really, the, the kind of irony in this is that Dublin City Council could end up buying back its own land, which is a very bad deal uh, for the, the taxpayer. As Lorcan Sir says, a potentially bad deal for the taxpayer, and it seems most parties on Dublin City Council agree. Sinn Féin and Solidarity PBP are opposed to the plan. A Labour, Social Democrats, Greens council group will also reject it this evening. Fianna Fáil councillors are likely to vote to defer any decision on the plan, while Fine Gael's nine councillors are in favour of the plan. Now, that breakdown spends, spells trouble for the plan at tonight's vote of 63 councillors. But here's Fine Gael, North Inner City, Dublin Council, Nisha O'Murray, who says the plan should be agreed now. This plan is a plan that the City Council has been working on effectively since 2014 and it brings 853 badly needed housing units on stream on the north side on the Oscar Trainer Road. It's ready to go and we really should be looking at pulling the trigger now. It's, it's a new model for the City Council and it's important that it's done properly but it is a model if it works uh, that could be rolled out elsewhere. Uh, the enemy of the good is the best here we can all strive for perfection on everything Um, there are things around this plan particularly around affordability of affordable units that we would like to see further progress on but the units are there uh, and they're ready to go and I would urge everybody to really think long and hard now, one of the councillors, Nisha O'Murray, is trying to convince and is urging to think long and hard about the issue is Labour councillor and Dublin City Council Housing Strategy Chair Alison Gilliland, who joins me now. Now, Alison, Nisha and, co- and council officials say this is a badly needed plan. So why are you not welcoming the prospect of work on eight hundred, more than 800 new houses starting within the next six months? The plan looks great on paper, but we have two main issues of it. Firstly, we're trading over half of the units, so 400 units to a private developer for private sale. That's bad enough in itself, but there's no guarantee that those units won't be sold to vulture funds and potentially rented back to the council through housing assistance payment. The other issue we have, that the plan doesn't adequately address the needs of those middle-income earners struggling to put affordable, long-term rental roofs over their heads. And what do you expect to happen in the vote this evening and where, if the plan is voted down, where will it leave people who are in need of homes now? The plan will be voted down and we want a quick turnaround on it. We want to work with central government so we can put a plan in place that puts Dublin City Council in the driving seat to lead the development and provide public housing on this public land and maximise it for public good. So big decisions there for the 63 council members on Dublin City Council this evening. Back to you, Gavin. Fierker, thank you. It's nine minutes to nine. 
The government will come under further pressure from opposition TDs today to allow the Justice Minister to answer questions about the appointment of Mr Justice Seamus Wolfe to the Supreme Court in July. Mr Wolfe's name was the only one sent to Cabinet for approval, despite three actual judges expressing an interest in the vacant role. Meanwhile, the Cabinet is expected to approve the introduction of a pilot scheme for a universal basic income of €325 Euro a week for people working in the arts sector who have seen their income decimated since March. We're joined now by the Arts and Culture Minister, Catherine Martin. Good morning. Good morning. And you're welcome. We'll talk about the arts sector in a few moments because it, it's so important and it affects so many people. But in relation to Mr Justice Seamus Wolfe, first of all, why shouldn't Helen McEntee answer questions on his appointment. Um, well, first just to say, you know, as as a standard practice with judicial appointments, there's a pro- there is a process in place um, for 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 that, and that that was adhered to. Minister McEntee was before the Justice Committee yesterday, laid out the process and how how the name of one person was brought before um, government last July, and uh, said that everything uh, was adhered to and, and complied to, and she considered the expressions of interest, and one name was brought before them. Um, now, um, I, I I would I would be fearful that there'd be a risk there if um, it's, it's unprecedented for um, a Minister of Justice to be brought before the doll to, 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 to answer questions on a judicial a- appointment like that. Um, and I believe it would set a dangerous precedent to, to go into such detail on an individual um, appointment and I don't believe that that would serve the separation of power as well. Right. Um, we talked to a constitutional law expert, David Kenny, this morning, who said there would be no obstacle in his in his view to answering questions, and that 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 reason, given the separation of powers, was not a valid one. Do you know, though, uh, Helen McEntee made a statement, but she didn't answer questions. For example, the three judges who wished to be considered for the Supreme Court vacancy. Do you know how she became aware of their interest? Uh, but that's, that's something that, uh, that, that I'll, I'll be talking to, to, to Helen about. I, I, I believe, like any, any appointment, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there are other applicants. Um, so as a standard Minister of Justice, consider the expressions of interest from serving members of the judiciary, uh, other judges eligible for the position and the recommendation of JAB, and then brought one name, one name forward. But did those I, I judges we, contact her directly, do you know? There needs to be more consistency and transparency mm. with this process. And reform is needed, um, and the Green Party would would be seeking um, more transparency in in relation to this. That that is the process that is currently in place, and that process um, would would need to be reviewed. And uh, I think that the plan is now to move ahead with the Judicial Appointments Commission Bill um, to to establish a single process. And that's an acknowledgement that the change is needed. Um, The Taoiseach has said that he wasn't aware that three actual judges were interested in the Supreme Court job. Did your party leader know? Uh, my party, party leader, Minister Ryan, said he, he wasn't aware that it, it was one name. And, and that's where the transparency and greater uh, consulting of, of party leaders in any, any coalition uh, need, needs to take place. And that's where reform is needed uh, for greater transparency. Do you know if Leo Varadkar knew? I, I can't speak for, for Leo um, Radker. I can only speak for the government of which I am part of. Um, and of course, there's always room for improvement and for more transparency. One name came before for, before cabinet, but maybe there should be greater consultation with the leaders. Um, but but I, with the leaders, but but cabinet time itself is not best spent asking the cabinet to deliberate on three or four or five names. But in in a, in, in, in the, the current government where we have a, a three-party coalition, um, I, I believe there's re- greater room for. Um, consultation and transparency around that process. 
Yes, and wouldn't transparency be helped by the Minister answering questions? Um, as I said, I don't believe that that would serve the separation of power as well. Um, I, I, I think there's a risk it would descend into opposition politics uh, for the sake of opposition politics. And we have to remember the, the, very, the, the reality of the, the very adversarial nature of Dáil Éireann. And, a, you know, a one and a half hour, two hour questions and answers on this might actually prove counterproductive. And I would be worried that damage would, would be done. OK, just, just a final question on this. Are you satisfied it wasn't a political appointment given because Fianna Fáil were taking the Attorney General's job in the new Cabinet? I'm satisfied that that Minister McEntee, she, she outlined yesterday, uh, adhered and complied with a process that is in place. But having said that, I, I would believe, and, and uh, the opinion of the Green Party is that, that there's reform needed here. But as I said, it's the, it's the intention now to, to bring that uh, reform through um, proceeding with the Judicial Appointments Commission Bill. OK. You received the Arts and Culture Recovery Task Force report yesterday, and it recommends a, a range of measures. Um, the main one perhaps and the most immediate for the artist's concerns is is to do with their income and it, it proposes a pilot universal basic income of 325 euro a week when will that pilot be introduced well, they, I, I brought this report before Cabinet yesterday. Um, it's a task force I set up in September um, from, from a range of members from culture, the arts, audiovisual industry, live performance and, and events uh, industry in the not-for-profit and commercial sectors. First time that all, all these groups have come together and the recommendations, including the UBI, there are 10 key recommendations there, are not just for survival but, but for, for recovery. And I indicated to, to Cabinet yesterday that I will move now to immediately set up an oversight um, committee to 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 praise these recommendations but but there is uh, in the program for government just as the establishment of this task force was in the program for government there was also a commitment that the report would feed into the national economic plan and of course there's a, a commitment there to request the low pay commission to examine the universal basic income informed by a review of previous international pilots and mm. um, the the, the recommendation in the report is, is looking for a three-year pilot and um, the, the next step is, is, is getting this oversight group. It's, it touches on, on, on other uh, departments. So it'll be Will, that be, will that be done before the this. end of this year, Minister? Will a pilot scheme be in place before the end of this year, do you think? Before the end of this year? Mm. I, uh, like there, there are only about six weeks left uh, of this year. I, I, I couldn't commit to that. Um, in, in fairness, I, I don't think that'd be realistic, um, and I, I don't believe that the, the the members of the task force would expect it that quickly. Um, it, mm. it has to be examined and how best to do it to best serve uh, um, the, the, the sector if, if, sure. if that's what we choose to do. But but listening to various artists across the day yesterday, they were saying they need money now. They need to pay their bills they need to put food on the table and a three-year pilot scheme to determine whether a universal basic income is the way to go. What good is that to them? But they, they sought the three years. That, that's the, recommend, the recommendation um, from the task force. They're looking for a three-year pilot scheme. Um, and that's why there are, are nine other recommendations uh, there too. And, and I, I think we, we can safely say that this government uh, is uh, backing our artists and values our artistic community and creative community. Just look at the recent budget, the unprecedented $130 million given to the Arts Council. A $5 million pilot scheme in the July stimulus package has, has now evolved into a $50 million um, um, scheme for 
for the live events uh, industry who, who, were, who, who never needed uh, assistance before, but it's an acknowledgement um, of, of that there needs to be engagement and there needs to be supports in, in okay. place. So it's, it's looking in the broader context of all the supports um, that, that, are, that are there um, for, for the arts community. And okay, I am, since I became Minister, I am continually engaging with all, all members of, of the arts community. My officials are in that ongoing engagement too. Okay. I hear the concerns. I think what we did in the budget um, and setting up this yeah. task force, the launch yesterday, um, I, I think that, that signals um, my intent and my, my, my intent to, to, to protect them. And as I said, the, this task force was not just uh, for the recommendations, not just for, for, for survival, but for, for the re- recovery. Because it's, Okay. Can it's I just ask you finally uh, about COVID, Minister? It will, will last longer okay. uh, for this community. Uh, there are many ways first out and will, will be last back in. Can I ask you finally about COVID? I mean, Christmas is a wonderful and busy time for the arts sector. Choral concerts, recitals, shows, panto, they're all off, aren't they, this year? Um, well, well, again, with, within the recommendation, I think it's recommendation eight, uh, it looks for um, the, the treatment of cultural activities and, and venues under the various levels um, of the Resilience and Recovery Plan uh, to, to, for urgent review. And this will be considered and, and uh, as a, that there's ongoing engagement there in the coming weeks in the context of the next phase. Um, they are, you know, you know, as it stands, and I'm sure you know that the level three, many arts and culture spaces would, would be closed at level three. Mm-hmm. So this is something we really, really need to give serious consideration to. But we have to look at, at, at what's happening here in level five. For the first three weeks, the numbers were moving in the right direction. Something happened in week four. Um, I, I don't know if an element of complacency um, uh, sank, uh, happened because um, the, the numbers are now going in the wrong direction. So the, the best that, that, that we can do now uh, is is to come together as, as a nation. We want our businesses to reopen. We want our artists to perform. Uh, we want to, to, to be with our families again, um, not just at Christmas, but, but, but you know, uh, in the longer term. This is a very tough time for, for everyone in, in involved. Okay. So I'd appeal to people to really, in these last two weeks, you know, let's give December the 1st our, our best shot by really adhering strictly. Um, it, it's, it's, we, we, we owe that to the businesses who are closed. We owe that to the artists who can't perform. And, okay. uh, and we want to be with our families. Thank you very much indeed, Arts and Culture Minister Catherine Mark. The government is likely to step back from plans to ban pubs from selling takeaway alcohol. However, the Cabinet will today consider proposals to fine people who gather outside to drink. Last night, our reporter Joan O'Sullivan went to Dublin's South William Street and she spoke to people there, some of them enjoying a takeaway drink, about the controversy. I don't like it, but I understand it because I have seen a lot of and I have been maybe a lot of people gathering, but I think throughout all of it, it's been tough because there is no way to socialize. So being younger, the expat community here, being single, like it's hard to find places to meet people. So it feels like if you're outdoors and with the takeaway pint, like you're much safer than being in somebody's house or the house party. I think it's a bit ridiculous really, because you're just going to move the people drinking outside, inside, where way more likely to actually catch the virus. So. People are going to be doing it regardless. You may as well make sure that they're doing it outside where there's less, less of a risk of transmission. I've only seen people doing it about a week ago and I thought it was a great idea, but I know I've seen the videos from South William Street and it's kind of just, it was nice while it lasted, but yeah, it's probably for the best. I think it's an absolute laugh because like the pubs have to make money some way and we, weren't, we were actually keeping very well to the restrictions outside 
keeping apart it wasn't getting out of hand at all um, I actually think it's a good idea um, it might stop people congregating on the streets and stuff like that and then it might be able it might be easier to see um, the cur- how the curve goes in terms of cases and stuff I don't think it's that much of a big deal because I suppose people are most people are bringing them home but I suppose there are people that are out on the streets and then groups are forming and everything so that's gonna be you, you can see why it's happening like but you know I feel like people are have to have some kind of happiness some kind of getting around the place I suppose you're, you're both enjoying some takeaway pints tonight yes exactly pint yeah. again. even standing in the rain I know yeah exactly <laughs> nothing like a fresh sure. pint of Guinness water is water pints <laughs> yeah. are pints I suppose from the business side of things you have to see that they're just trying to make a bit of money it's, it's a struggle for any kind of hospitality industry that's suffering so bad I just think it needs to be policed a little bit better well I think it's fine as long as people are socially distant but I just hope that um, young people don't get blamed for this problem because as far as I've seen walking around town it's not actually the young people that are not socially distancing it's the older age groups. We're not causing any trouble we're just trying to see our friends make the best of a bad situation. Those views gathered by Joan O'Sullivan in Dublin city centre last night. We can talk now to Joe Barry, former professor of population health medicine at Trinity College in Dublin, and to Deirdre Devitt, owner of the Two Sisters pub in Dublin's Terranure. Deirdre, let's start with you. You sell both food and alcohol, I gather. Do people gather outside? Well, we're in the suburbs of Dublin, I suppose, so a um, little bit different to the scenes, I mean, that that were, were put on social media. Um, people do buy drinks and, take, and food to take away, um, and I can't see anything wrong with some, a couple ordering a meal and a pint and a mojito to go home. Um, we have told anybody who is buying drinks that they must uh, move 100 metres away from the premises, and in general, people are buying them to walk home or to walk with a friend up the road. Have some publicans, though, have they been happy enough to turn a blind eye to what's happening on their doorstep? Well, I think, Rachel, it's it's very hard to know because the actions of a few can't result in the punishment of the whole country. And, I mean, if you put it into context, the vast majority of the pubs in in the country are closed. And a lot of them have been closed since March. And there are 50,000 staff who are sitting at home and they're laid off. So really, you know, if you wanted to launch any new product, I think you should launch it in South William Street because that seems to be the only thing that will grab the attention of government. I mean, the LDA wrote to the government, um, Helen McEntee and the Taoiseach in July, calling for a ban on street drinking and saying that we would support a ban on takeaway pints for the better and the benefit of the whole trade in all of the country because we didn't want some scenes... Um, in, in, in isolated, smaller, you know, circumstances influencing the reopening of the hospitality sector. As we heard there, though, uh, on Joan's report, I mean, one of the people she spoke to said, well, listen, wouldn't it be worse if they were inside drinking? But I mean, look, you've asked the members of the public there and every single one of them has said they enjoy a bit of interaction. They, they're, they're, the support for these restrictions is fraying at the seams. People, are, you know, are living their lives by Zoom. They're living in house shares. It's, would you blame somebody from, for going for a walk to meet their friend to, for a drink or a coffee, by the way, because people are gathering in parks and drinking coffee and buying artisan products. The parks in Dublin, are, I, I know, are, are pretty full these days and the guards have to police that as well. You know, so, I mean, there's bylaws in existence in that area of Dublin um, to, to 
deal with, um, I suppose, on, on, on street drinking. And the guards, I believe, were there shortly afterwards, if not there at the time. They dispersed the crowds and they said there wasn't any infringement. Um, I mean, it doesn't really take a, a behavioural scientist to see that people are socialising and people are drinking. All right, let's bring in Dr. Joe Barry. You've heard what Deirdre Devitt had to say there. What would you do faced with this problem? Well, I think uh, one thing I would I would disagree with, with Deirdre on is that, that the support for the measures are freeing. On the Clare Burn show last night, there was a, a Vox Pop, about a thousand people or a survey, and 58% wanted restrictions on takeaway drink and 35% didn't. So that's quite a big majority in favour. Uh, I worked, uh, Rachel, in the first part of the year on the front line with the HSE on COVID response and I I chair one of the local drugs task forces in Dublin now as well and uh, we are seeing huge impacts of alcohol generally. Now I'm glad that the government is is taking an urgent approach to this current issue because it is a problem Uh, and uh, I think my concern is that if you want to change human behaviour, fining people is not actually the way to do it. I think the way to to do it is to restrict supply and it's not as if we have uh, a poor supply of alcohol in Ireland. Uh, we've added, we're, they're trying to add a new dimension now, this is takeaway pints, which is causing difficulties. Um, I think every, every convenience store, every uh, supermarket, every garage sells alcohol. So there isn't a problem with supply of alcohol. Um, there have been several instances now of, of difficulties on the streets and the guards are busy. And uh, I think the government, their messaging has got a lot better over the last fortnight. I think the Taoiseach has sort of taken charge and is sort of building up the confidence of the people again, which had been, you know, frayed a bit. Um, and I think, but I think that the response, I think this is an urgent issue as the government has decided and is going to deal with it today. I would think it would be better that they would say to the pubs, listen, you can't uh, sell drink for takeaway for the present, um, rather than sending the Gardaí out onto the streets to, you know, to police it and find people who are mingling in in groups of two. I think that's not the way to do it. I hear what you're saying, but is that fair, though, given that when it comes to the publicans, we're talking about people whose businesses have been decimated this year? I appreciate the pub trade has suffered hugely in the hospitality trade. I do, I know that, and I like pubs myself. Uh, and it, it, But the problem, Rachel, is that alcohol is not the best thing to be taking uh, when you're trying to practice uh, public health guidelines because, you know... the whole Alcohol thing and social distancing don't go together. Pardon? Alcohol they and social distancing don't and go together. that's tough on the pub trade, and I think the government is putting in some packages. Um, as Ronan Glynn said, and this is not just about Christmas, this is about having a pleasant spring of 2021. Um, and everybody is getting a bit afraid at the earth because, you know, it's going on longer than people anticipated, and while there's a lot of talk about a vaccine, and that will be great, it's not there in the immediate term. Mm. Um, And I think there is widespread, even political support. The only politician I've heard commenting on this issue is Michael Healy Ray. And Michael is a good communicator, but he was one of only 10 TDs in the last oil who opposed the public health alcohol bill. It's actually the government policy that was set up uh, three months ago to reduce our alcohol consumption. And while uh, everybody, I, I wouldn't like to have to work in the pub trade now because it is tough. Yeah. I, I and there is, agree there is, fully as you with say, that. 
but other people, other sectors have suffered as well. Yeah, and, and, and there um, is, as you say, there's also a broader issue here about our attitude towards alcohol. But if I could just go back briefly to Deirdre, is one of the problems in all of this, and I'm referring back here to something said by Dr. Ronan Glynn, that seems like that on South William Street, and I know there were similar scenes in Cork, that they threaten the social solidarity that's needed at the moment, that the rest of us end up saying, well, listen, why would you bother? No, I don't think so. I mean, as I said, would you blame somebody for going to meet their friends? They're meeting in parks, they're drinking coffee. And as as, um, was quite rightly just said there, alcohol is sold from a number of different outlets, not just pubs. And if um, we want to use a hammer to crack the nut by the scenes that happened at the weekend, those scenes have been happening all summer. Yeah, I suppose that's one of the problems, isn't it? And, uh, it is. Anyway. It's, not, it's not a reflection on everybody in the country and how they're, they're, they approach alcohol. Absolutely not. All and right. I must say, I, I find it a breath of fresh air to see people um, meeting up outdoors, having a pint or a coffee. Even if there's a danger that they'll spread disease. But not in a safe manner. You're talking about groups of two meeting to have a coffee and a chat and to sit on a wall and talk to each other. What is wrong with that? All right. Listen, we're going to have to leave it at that for today. No doubt there'll be more heard later on in the day when the Cabinet makes its decision. Our thanks to Dr Joe Barry and also to Deirdre Devitt. Now, the CEO of the employer group IBEC, Danny McCoy, has called on the Taoiseach to prioritise the reopening of the retail, hospitality and travel sectors for Christmas trading. He wants a sequential easing of restrictions to begin the last week of November for retailers and the supply chain providers. For a smooth reopening, certainty and advance notice are needed, he says. Danny McCoy joins joins us and good morning. You're not pulling your punches, uh, Denny McCoy, in this letter too on Taoiseach. Your members, you're saying, really are are sick, sore and tired of these COVID restrictions. And then you say that the blanket suppression of these sectors lacks any refinement despite learnings and evidence accumulated since March. What do you mean? Yeah, so um, the, the letter sets out quite a number of issues, actually, in terms of trying to underpin the government's own strategy, as stated, suppression strategy, which is suppress and then to release. So what we're saying is that we need, this needs to be done in a controlled way. A controlled manner is a much far safer option than keeping everything closed and then a kind of rush to Christmas. Christmas is the immovable, or appears to be any in our society, immovable date. And so for the non-essential retail that's suppressed at the moment, it would make much more sense to avoid the congregations of rushing into retail at the end to use more days on the way in. And then there's issues around travel and hospitality that can be dealt with as well. In the hospitality side, there needs to be lead times to get the food and drink in place so that when, when it does open, and I expect it will open given the societal pressures, that again we see this done in a controlled and orderly way. Businesses have the data and insights to the sectors how to do this safely. We've done it over the summer months. People have made investment and commitment to doing it. So that, you know, it's in all our interest, and I I echo what the Minister said, we really need to get it down for the 1st of December. We need to have a collective effort now in these two weeks. But side by side in that, the government needs to give direction to businesses of how they're going to control the inevitable reopening that's going to occur. Have your members lost confidence in government and indeed in NEFET because they don't escape uh, in your letter either? No, we we haven't lost confidence in the government nor in NEFET and NEFET's decision-making because they're doing their best. They're using the information as best they can. But the communication is awful. When you have individual members of NEFET 
effectively kite-flying or coursing what the government should do and preempting a government having a decision, a discussion with those who are involved to have a controlled opening. It doesn't help anybody. So you're suggesting so that if Neffet is asked a question at their briefing, which they answer, Tony Houlihan talking about uh, an increase again in, in, in COVID numbers, which is worrying, is that what you're calling kite-flying? No, the, CM, the CMO has a role to play. He's an advisor to the government. Um, no decisions there should be preemptive of what the government's decision in the totality. I'm talking about in your own show, when members of Neffet come on and kite fly all the time. And that's been a pattern, repeated pattern that we've seen right throughout. But and that does limit the government's choices, but it also gives a frustration to the general public, but also to the businesses who day in, day out are getting these knee-jerk reactions. We need a controlled messaging, mm-hmm. controlled opening. And we also need, in addition to the hospitality, retail and travel, we need something that guidance for the office workers as well to know in the new year how they can come back safely as well. And you know Neffet would refute suggestions of kite flying. They're dealing with modelling, they're dealing with the evidence before them, they're dealing with the numbers before them. Look, we see, we, we've seen um, that you know people will differ, and that's fair enough, within uh, groupings. We've just seen the last couple of days about whether it should be level five or level three. The reality is we put the costs in now. It's important that we actually get the benefit to the 1st of December. So redoubling of our efforts in these two weeks but we need the controlled reopening of the economy for December because that's what's going to happen anyhow. We know that at this stage. This, you've got to keep the public on board here. Christmas is clearly a very important event, but we need to do so in a controlled way that we try and keep the actual in, uh, virus suppressed even during December. And that can be done by controlled, responsible uh, businesses, rather than the uncontrolled congregations we've seen in recent weeks. Uh, for some of your members, is a, a, a decent Christmas the difference between survival or not? It will be for a swathe of particularly small medium enterprises. And again, we see that people have been denied livelihoods. And to be honest, when you, when you cite the data that's been used in the modelling, their outcomes with the data in terms of the costs for achieving these benefits, and they are benefits, but at what cost? We see that in terms of livelihood, but also the question has to be asked, what cost in, ter- in terms of other health outcomes that our society is going to experience? But we actually need the government be- to be in the lead of this process. And frankly, over the last number of months, that's not been clear. Danny McCoy of IBEC, thank you very much. Proactive mass testing policy could stave off a cycle of lockdowns that cost billions of euro to the economy. Now, that's according to the authors of an international study uh, that Kian McCormack has been taking a look, a look at. Now, Kian, tell us first of all about the study and about its range. Well, the study is called Optimising COVID Testing Systems. The University of Sussex carried it out recently. It compared COVID-19 testing and tracking systems in six countries, Britain, Ireland, Germany, South Korea, South Africa and Spain. One main finding is that isolation and quarantine are crucial to breaking the transmission of the virus and should be backed up by enforcement and support measures. Here's Dr Jim Ryan of Circa Group a consultancy firm who conducted the Irish research for this study. 
you're dependent on the public now. If you find that somebody is positive, you're really dependent on the commitment of individual to stay isolated and not spread the disease to other people. And that seems to be where it's breaking down. Um, I think we can see that everywhere in, in, in almost every country. And even as, as can be seen from recent reports, even one individual breaking the isolation can have uh, disastrous consequences for a whole lot of other uh, members of the community. Dr. Jim Ryan, their proactive mass testing policy. It can help us, Kean, to avoid, avoid cycles of lockdowns. Uh, you spoke to the lead author. That's what he's saying. Yes, Professor Michael Hopkins says reactive testing systems, that's where you find, test, trace, isolate and support people after COVID-19 infection should be replaced by more proactive systems where you seek out and detect the virus. We don't know how long it will be until the vaccine is widely available. In the meantime, we have lockdowns as a way of winding the clock back on the virus numbers. And we have test and trace. And as I've said at the moment, test and trace is a good way of identifying where the virus is. Um, But we've seen, even with the relatively well-functioning system that you have in Ireland, it's not enough to keep a check on things. And so we need to have more testing to be able to really keep a check on it. And If the testing system is able to slow down the spread of the virus, then ultimately that means that the need for lockdowns will be lessened. The period between lockdowns could be increased. And that obviously has, I think, a a very strong positive economic effect then. Professor Hopkins, Slovakia has carried out mass testing. Has it helped stave off lockdowns? Well, Mary, the answer is no, not entirely. Slovakia tested two thirds of its population, 3.6 million people over two days at the start of the month with rapid antigen testing. 57,000 new cases were detected and regional COVID-19 hotspots were highlighted. Dr. Pavel Chekan is an advisor to the Slovakian government and I asked him if mass testing means whether you can avoid lockdown. It only means that you can avoid complete lockdown. The curve is coming down because you've been able to identify the areas that need to be targeted in terms of restrictions and measures. Would that be fair enough to say? Yes. However, it's a combination because, you know, we cannot determine if it is soft lockdown or massive testing that actually actually crashed the curve. We have very soft lo- lockdown. So people go to work, students, they go to school, but only primary. You can you can have a coffee and even dinner on 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 terrace and 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 you can you you can you can even go to barber. we We can travel. In that sense, uh, a testing is good because, you know, if you have negative test, you, you can travel from one region to another. That would be handy around Christmas. Yes, but also we know in Slovakia that this is kind of a, we are going into a very dangerous time, which is Christmas time, where, where families meet, people go to church. We try to educate people that we are doing okay in Slovakia, but the Christmas is going to be quite dangerous. 
And that point there by Dr. Chakan about moving between regions after getting COVID-19 tests. Well, an Irish company has developed a health and wellness passport app that includes COVID-19 tests for places like factories, schools and other workplaces. The company is called Health and Wellness International. Here's its CEO, Muriel Cuddy. The benefits of rapid testing are we don't stay going in and out of lockdown and and the economic costs to business closing are massive. There's two ways that we actually um, speak to companies about in relation to this. Uh, The proactive way for us is if you could test your workers um, at least weekly, you can pick out the positive cases. The reactive way is if there happens to be a COVID outbreak within a company, can you go in and can you stay testing for up to a week? So you can do anything from three to five days and you test everybody constantly and stay picking out the positive cases cases until that subsides. Going back to whether proactive mass testing can help us avoid cycles of lockdowns, well, experts agree that it's all part of a mix of measures. Here's Killian de Gascon, Director of the National Virus Reference Laboratory at UCD. Testing is one component, but if you have a badly affected region or or a town or whatever it might be, in actual fact, self-isolation, restriction of movements and quarantine are probably as effective as, as testing in and of themselves. Everything has to be done in conjunction purely because if you have a region that's affected and you test everybody and everybody who thinks that they have a negative result goes out and and goes about their normal business, they will transmit virus. So you're back to square one. Testing in and of itself certainly has a role to play, but it's just one component of a suite of measures that we really need to continue to implement until the vaccines will come on stream in, in 2021. Killian Dagaskin, Director of the UCD National Virus Reference Laboratory, ending that report. A violinist from County Louth will play for a president on the 20th of January next year. Patricia Tracy, she's one of our leading concert violinists. She's played for Joe Biden during his vice presidential years and played back home in County Louth on his visit in 2016. Earlier I spoke to Patricia Tracy. She's in Chicago at the moment. Let's hear first this talented star play a piece by Ashokan. Patricia Tracy in Chicago, good morning and thank you for staying up to talk to us. Hello Mary, good morning to you, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. This week you received a very special invite, will you tell us about it? I did indeed, I got a phone call from the Biden family asking would I like to play at the inauguration. So it was it was an incredible honour and, and it is such a privilege and I honestly can't believe it. I nearly don't know what to think at the moment. My head's in a spin. <laughs> I, I can imagine that is quite the invite. So you will be at Capitol <laughs> Buildings in January when Joe Biden is inaugurated <clears throat> as President of the United States. Quite the invite. You you know the Biden family. You've played yes. for Joe Biden before. Yes. So I was asked to play for the then Vice President in 2016 at March for his St. Patrick's Day celebrations in Washington at the official residence, the number one um, naval observatory and after that he came over and he was chatting and he was so down I mean I was so nervous but after the performance he came over and he was chatting he was so down to earth so genuine and lovely and just asking me 
questions about where did the love for music come from and I said it was from my mother she was my inspiration with a beautiful singing voice and he said well where is she and I said well she, you know she's in her 80s she's not gonna be able to travel here but she'll be at home lighting the candles and, and she's told me to just ring her as soon as I come out so he just looked around and he said my goodness well you know it's a shame she's not here you should get her on the phone I'd love to speak to her so I got her on the phone and I chatted away. So when he came to Ireland then, that summer, I was asked to play again in Cooley in County Louth, where I'm from. And I took Mammy in to see him and sure he just got down and bended knee in front of her. And he said it was such an honour to finally get to meet her. And she patted him on the head and she said, don't worry, Joe, I'm going to be praying for you. Now. Everything's going to be all right. <laughs> Patricia, you're fond of him. I am so fond of him. He's incredible. And I really ha I really have got to know him. That day, the, the request for the, the family said, you know, will you please join us in Lily Finnegan's pub? And the Secret Service whisked me off in the motorcade to Lily Finnegan's bar where I got to spend time with the family, Val. And then the president or vice president came in again and he said he wanted he wanted a photograph taken with his Irish violinist. <laughs> and he got his niece to take the photograph. So, I mean, just since then, I've been very friendly with the whole lot of them, really. I got invited to, to the White House again, then for the Medal of Freedom. That was in January of 2017. And um, again, the whole family were there. It was a great day. I got to meet his other cousins from Mayo. So you're nearly one of the family at this stage, I Patricia. Know, you know. know them all so well. <laughs> You'll be there on the, the 20th of January. We were listening to you playing uh, a Shokin Farewell there in that little piece as we came yes. in to talk to you. Have Indeed. you any idea uh, what you'll be playing on Inauguration Day? You know, I don't as yet. I was just given the date we don't know what the protocol on the day is going to be now with the result of everything that's going on and COVID. But I'm sure they'll be there. I mean, of course, they'll be back in touch with me and I'll, we'll figure all that out. I'm mm. going to have to see how long I'm playing for. Is it one tune? Is it 10 tunes? Is it, you know, what am I doing? So I have no idea as yet, but I really don't mind. I'm, so I, I'm sure. Have you thoughts, though? Would, would you like it to be a, a, an Irish air? Oh, I think so. I think that would be very appropriate, don't you? I mean, he is from Ireland after all. And that was Patricia, Patricia Tracy on her big date on January the 20th. And as we heard in yesterday from Elaine Q in her report, the first deaths that came that morning came at the hands of the IRA, who shot 15 soldiers, police and civilians in a bid to strike at the heart of British intelligence. Well, today, Elaine takes the story forward. Her second report moves the focus to Croke Park in the afternoon. It is just over six hours since IRA squads assassinated British militants of people heading to Croke Park to see Tipperary and Dublin play. The match started late as the crowd was greater than anticipated. Michael Foley, author of The Bloodied Field, says that after the IRA's killings that morning, the match was firmly on the radar of the British authorities. The first thing that came to mind to them was the Dublin Brigade of the IRA on their own. There's no way they could have developed this plan and carried it out like this. So they're looking around at, well, was there outside influence here? Was there, was there people come up from the country, perhaps, and helped plan this? So they're looking at a football game between Dublin and Tipperary in Croke Park. Tipperary, where the War of Independence is at its height, where you have a number of different senior figures in the IRA fighting it out down there. 
And the British start to think, well, I wonder, did people come up under the guise of supporters to help carry out these attacks? So suddenly Croke Park becomes a potential target, not for reprisal, but as a search operation. The idea being that the police will go in, perform a search, stop the game, and the army are outside then to let everybody out. But that is not what happens. So the trucks arrive on the canal bridge. Um, Major Dudley, who's the head of the Black and Tan Force, who were part of this RIC auxiliary convoy that have arrived he jumps out of the second truck and he starts directing more trucks further down Jones's Road but while he's doing that instead of falling into lines and preparing themselves to go in and perform this search operation police start taking up positions on the canal bridge they start running down a little alleyway that leads to a set of turnstiles and they start climbing that wall and through those turnstiles and they just open fire on people so the first shots ring out the first victim is 11-year-old William Robinson. He's sitting in a tree at that corner of the Hogan and the Davin stands as we'd know it now. Jerome O'Leary is 10 years of age. He's sitting on a wall a little further down. He falls from the wall, shot and killed. And after that, the police are now on the ground. They're firing at knots of people who are running away. All the crowd are heading towards the north and the northeast end of the ground, up to what we would know now as the Cusack stand in Hill 16 corner where there's, where there's an exit there. But outside on the road, there's an armoured car coming down. And they see all these people coming out. And the military are still under the impression that this is a search operation. So they fire into the air using their machine gun, pushing people back in again onto the crowd that are coming out. And that causes a fatal crush. Michael Hogan was 24. He was shot on the pitch and was the only player to die. His grandniece, Louise Hogan, said letters written to his family detailed his final moments. Um, one of Mick's brothers, Tom, he wrote home to tell his mother how he had spoken to Father Crotty, who was one of the priests who gave Mick last rites on the pitch. And Mick wrote, His last words were a prayer, as you know. When Father Crotty reached Mick as he lay on the field, a nurse was bending over him and said to Mick, They have murdered you, but they cannot kill your soul. Who fired the shots that started the massacre? A spectator later claimed to have seen three men stand up in the grandstand and fire warning shots into the air which precipitates shooting from the police. Author Michael Foley again. He says he sees three guys standing out and firing into the into the air. Now, the press table was right beside where he would have been. The newspapers the following week are full of eyewitness accounts and also first-person testimonies from the couple of journalists who were there. Not a one single person says that the firing started inside the ground. They certainly didn't see three people standing out onto the field and starting to fire in the air. But it's all part of a narrative that the British government at the time needed to sell and sell hard. The first statements that came out of Dublin Castle that night declared that they had found 30 revolvers scattered around Crow Park. That was absolutely not true. When you consider the evidence given to those two courts of military inquiry, when you consider the testimonies given to newspapers when you put all those things together it points squarely and directly at the police that were there in the day eight of those killed lay in unmarked graves for decades that changed with the GAA bloody Sunday graves project which saw headstones and markers placed on those graves Dr Siobhan Doyle cultural historian and tour guide at the GAA museum said the eight are united because of the project only those who could afford uh, permanent grave markers got them. The rest of them lay, lay in unmarked graves. And it's even more tragic to the story that only those who attended the funeral then knew their, their resting place. The victims, they all, they were, they were unknown to each other in life. 
you know, the only thing they had in common was that they went to a match in Crow Park um, and now in death they are united. Father of three, Patrick O'Dowd helped others to escape before he too was shot. Liam Deneen's late aunt was Patrick's only daughter. He welcomed that and other commemorations by the GAA. She went to her grave without, she would be, she would be really pleased, really, really pleased and honoured that her father is being remembered on the day he lost his own life helping other people escape. That evening, after the shootings at Croke Park, the IRA lost Dick McKee, the brigadier of the IRA's Dublin Brigade, and his deputy, Padder Clancy. They had been arrested the night before, along with a civilian, Connor Clune. The three men died in custody, allegedly while trying to escape, but their deaths are believed to be part of the retaliation for the IRA's operation on Bloody Sunday morning. Michael Foley says it was a huge blow to the IRA. For a lot of men who were involved in those attacks on the morning, it was a very bittersweet victory, if you like, that yes, they had delivered this crushing blow as they saw it on the British Intelligence Network, but they had lost two key figures in their own organisation. The way Bloody Sunday is being remembered has changed in the last 100 years. Broadcaster and historian Donald Fallon. I think one of the tragedies of, of the Bloody Sunday story was when we commemorate the revolutionary period in Ireland through the years, we always had that great focus on you know, Vershe Boss or Son Sir Shinahair and he died for the freedom of Ireland, the volunteers with the, the roadside memorials across the country. Names like those ones, the ones we've heard today, they were much more forgotten. And even the 50th anniversary in, in, in the 70s, there was no great focus on the innocent lives that were lost that day. But that's shifting. Michael Foley's book has done wonders to shift that. Uh, the renaming of the bridge. I mean, the bridge won't be the Hogan Bridge. It's, it's the Bloody Sunday Bridge. It commemorates all of those lives that were lost. And I think that the focus on the innocent lives that were lost in this ground this year, it just shows that the decade of St. Henry's is always moving towards a more kind of social history approach that honours all lives lost. Historian Donald Fallon there, ending that report from Elaine Kyo, which was produced by Shane McElhatton. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.